And turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you're uh, visiting with us, maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, again, we've printed that on page 9 of the worship guide because we want that in front of you. This is God's Word. Um, and so uh, let me read Colossians chapter one, 3, starting with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, tend to your word. As we heard read, it is like a hammer that breaks stone, like a fire that consumes things. That scares us. It worries us because it means we can't hide from it. So we pray, God, do a work of redemption through your word. Don't leave us broken, but break us so that we could be healed. Transform us by your word so that we could leave here changed. But most of all, show us Jesus so that we could glory in him and have our hearts full of his grace and love. We need your spirit to do all of these things. And so tend to your word by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we as we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and if you're visiting with us, this is our sort of pattern at Zion. It's part of our philosophy of ministry is that we, we bank on the fact that God's word was given to us in books, and so we want to spend the bulk of our time working our way through those books, studying those books. And so as we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, we've sort of been camped out last week, this week, and really next week, and, and really for the weeks to come as we finish out the book, just talking about the process of change in the Christian life, right? And so last week we talked about the fact that, right, in our hands we don't have the power to change ourselves because the power of sin that is in us is much greater than anything we can handle, and Jesus is the only one with the power to change that, right? That's the sort of hard news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. The hard news of the gospel is you, we are so broken we can't change ourselves. The good news of the gospel is, but Jesus can and will, right? And so oftentimes I think if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for, 
for any number of years, you begin to notice that there's this gap between right what we say we believe and actually what gets worked out in our lives. And it's very frustrating at times. Sometimes it's articulated this way, right? There's head knowledge and heart knowledge. It's really not the language that the Bible uses all that often. It's just, it's really a matter of applying the gospel to different areas of our lives, right? And so we kind of, we kind of put the gospel when we when we do that, when we have that gap, what we end up doing is we put the gospel in this category over here. It's helpful for getting me into heaven one day, but it really doesn't have any real value to my day-to-day life. And, and so it's not presently helpful. And when we do that, when we put the gospel in that category over here, it'll get me into heaven and Jesus is valuable, but he doesn't really have anything to say in my day-to-day life. We fill that gap with methods, with strategies, what Paul calls earthly things. And that's what was going on in the Colossian church. The reason for that gap is this. False teachers had come into the church at Colossae and had said, look, if you want to change, you need to start doing these things. And the things that they were saying was they were taking a little bit of ancient Judaism and a little bit of the Greek and Roman culture and mixing it together and says, look, you need to do these things and then you can change. And Paul's saying, here's the problem. Those things come from bottom up and they have no power to change because they have no power in sin. And so here's what Paul is going to do for the entire rest of his letter. This is a pivotal point. The beginning of 3.1 is a pivotal point in the letter to the Colossians. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to take every area of life and say, look, here's how the Christian life flows out of the power of the gospel. He's going to go to sexuality, to coveting, right? You go far ends of the spectrum. He's going to talk about marriage and vocation. And he's going to tie it all back to one central theme. The heart of the gospel, our union with Christ. One of Paul's main points to the letter of the Colossians is that the Colossians, because they're united to Jesus Christ, have entered into a whole new realm of being. Last week I suggested that this is where the idea of kingdom becomes really important for understanding one's identity in Christ and what Jesus is doing in this world because a kingdom is a realm where power is exerted. It's a place where a king reigns and has authority. Inside of that realm, life is different and life is different for those who are united to Jesus Christ because he is the maker of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He is the one for whom all things exist and by his power, he has transferred us out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. A king on his throne, conquering our enemies. This is the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, how does Christ execute the office of king? If he's the king, what does that mean? Answer, Christ executes the office of king by subduing us to himself. That's his work of conversion. He brings us to faith in him. He subdues us. The rebel tendency in in us to reject God is subdued by King Jesus. And he overcomes that and gives us a new heart. Also in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all 
his and our enemies. Jesus is enough because he wins all of his battles and his great battles against sin and Satan are defeated and the cross. And here's Paul's point in 3.1. Because you belong to that king, there has been a definitive change in your life. You have been brought into a whole new realm of being. 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. If then, if you have been raised, if is there, the beginning of three is not conveying a conditional event. A conditional event works like this. If you eat your vegetables, then you can have your ice cream. That's not what he's saying. The if can better be translated maybe since. It's conveying an actual definitive event. Since you have been raised, notice with Christ, notice the past tense here. You've been raised to new life. Verse 3, you've died. Your life is hid with Christ. Where is Christ? Verse 2, he is seated at the right hand of God. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And Paul's saying, look, now live out of that reality. That's who you are because you're united to Jesus Christ. The union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel and it is everything. And I am afraid for most Christians, it is the least understood thing. We don't spend enough time just thinking on this central truth. But look, look what Paul does. I mean, this whole section, he's going to talk about, before he even begins to talk about applying Christ to marriage or sex or our desires, he talks about our union with Christ. And it's very simple to understand. Children. I want you to memorize this. If you are one with Jesus Christ, what is true about him is now true about you. Christ died 2,000 years ago. When you become a Christian, his death is applied and you die to the reigning power of sin. Christ is seated in heaven. Where where are you? Verse 4. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If you go back to his introductory remarks in chapter 1, verse 2, he talks to the saints who are in Colossae and are in Christ Jesus. He has no other way but to think of them this way. They're one with Jesus. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, why are sins forgiven? Because we're one with Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, In whom? That's the language of union. You're in Christ. What's true about him is true about you. So you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is holy and righteous and pure. Guess what? If you're united to him, you are holy, blameless, and free from accusation. Because what is true about him is now true about you. Verse 19 of chapter 2, he even begins to pile on metaphors here and describes our union with Christ like the metaphor of a body. The body can't exist apart from the head. It dies. Sever the head, it's gone. The same way, the Christian is united to Jesus, who is the head. And as a result of being united to the head, growth comes in the Christian life. 
And so getting, really understanding, making union with Christ central to our understanding of the gospel is the key to experiencing the power of Christ in our lives and closing that gap between what we say we believe in the gospel and experiencing its power. This is so central. Calvin, John Calvin, the great Swiss reformer and pastor, right, really had a heart for his people, really had a heart for his people experiencing Christ and everything that was theirs. He asked this question. How do we receive the benefits the Father has bestowed on us in his only begotten Son? Like, how do we get those? If, if those are ours, right? And this is what Peter says, like everything that belongs to Jesus is in ours, and then we have everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ. Those are all ours. So Calvin's like, okay, how do we get those? Like if that's true, how do those go from Jesus to me? in ways that fill the gap and change my life. First, first, he says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for our salvation of the human race remains absolutely useless and of no value. But, he goes on, by faith, you grasp union with Christ that he now dwells in us and us in him, that changes everything. So when we disconnect the Christian life from our union with Christ, the Christian life can just feel like it's just about my effort. Jesus got me in, the rest is up to me. I gotta work really hard. And so here's where Paul has been taking us. Sin is too powerful for you to conquer it by your weak efforts. There is this present benefit as we grow in holiness. Our growth as a Christian in overcoming sin is tied to our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. When he died and you're united to him, you too died to the ruling power of sin. Death, as I said last week, frees us from all kinds of things. It frees us from debt collectors knocking on our door. If you've been put in prison for a crime and have no freedom, it frees you from that imprisonment. And so too, united to Jesus and his death puts us in a new realm. But we have work to do. Verse 5. Our life is hid with Christ and God. Verse 4. When he appears, we'll appear with him. Therefore, verse 5, as a result of your union with Christ and his death and resurrection, here's your work, the command, put to death what is earthly in you. We said last week, here's the thing about sin. It's powerful, right? It's a beast that can't be tamed if you've tried to deal with sin just by putting boundaries in place or fencing it in or coming up with good strategies, all you're trying to do is contain it, but indwelling sin has to be killed. You can't tame a dragon. The beast is too fierce. It has to be slain. And so Paul in verse 5 is saying, 
put to death what is earthly in you because sin is like a rebel army that has established a kingdom and is reigning in our hearts. And Jesus, by his death, takes the power of the cross and, and sets us free so that no, army no longer has dominion over us, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. Now it's gone into insurgencies. It's like a, it's like a, a guerrilla war that's happening in our hearts. It's hiding out. It's always on the prowl to attack. And so we need to put sin to death. This is the command. Our fathers had a word for this work of killing sin they call it mortification from the word for death. We get mortician from the same root word for death. A mortician is someone who tends to dead bodies. Mortification, borrowing the word, the Greek from five. Mortification is the work of putting sin, the remaining sin to death in our lives. Now, let me say this is an aside, right? Unless you belong to Jesus, if your faith is in him, you have the power to put sin to death. If you're not walking with Jesus, if your faith is not in him, sin is reigning in your life and you have no choice but to do what it commands. It is the power that is oppressing you. So come to Jesus, let him set you free from that power and then give you the power to kill the remaining sin in your lives. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is to give us seven steps for the work of mortification, of putting sin to death. So if you're taking notes, seven steps. These are not in any type of chronological order. So don't think this as, I gotta do step one and then two and then three. Think this as, I've gotta constantly be doing all of these steps, except for the first one. This is, the first one is always first. It's always first, second, third, fourth. First step in mortification, putting sin, the remaining sin to death, See yourself seated with Christ. Verse 2. Set your mind, right? Think these things. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. And what Paul means is think on the gospel. He doesn't mean like think about spiritual things and don't think about earthly things like your job or your car or your finances. The, this is not a spiritual, secular distinction. This is Paul's way of talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. What's earthly is, is where sin and Satan reign, but where it is heavenly is to think on Jesus in his reign and your union with him. So this is Paul's way of saying, look, set your mind on the gospel. And sanctification, has got to start here, right? Putting sin to death has to start here. It is the first work. It's the first necessary work to experience the power of Christ to put sin to death. It's to tell yourself this. I don't have to do this because I am in Christ. Paul thought this way. He always was taking himself back. Galatians 2.20. Here's his self-talk. This is what it looks like to set your mind on things that above where Christ is seated and you with them. I have been crucified with Christ. 
identity issues. This is who I am. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it looks like to set your mind, to preach the gospel to yourself, right? Because what it does is it brings an event and then, and then you work out of it, right? The Christian life, putting sin to death, is just a process of becoming who you are, right? So that we all have these events in our lives that issues gives us a new status, a new identity, and then we've got to grow into that. When you became parents, many of you, when you became parents, that, that birth of that child gave you a new status, it gave you a new identity. You weren't parents, and then you were parents, but that didn't make you good parents, I've yet to find anybody who's really arrived at parenting. I think the older you get and the older your kids get, you just realize how much you just are relying on God's grace. But that's an aside. This is the way it works. You got married. That made a new status and a new identity. And then you've got to figure out how to live out of that. I remember distinctly driving, riding on the back of a motorcycle on the coast in Florida um, with no helmet on because uh, Florida doesn't have helmet laws. It was shortly after my first child was born, and I distinctly remember thinking, you can't do this anymore. You're a dad. And the goal of the Christian life is always to start here, to become what you are, to remind yourself, I'm in Christ. That's what it looks like to set your mind on your union with Christ. Secondly, See yourself with the glory that is your guaranteed future. Verse 4. Because you are united to Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And it's the construction here is with certainty. This is what will happen. Like when Jesus comes back, the glory that you presently have will be appearing to everyone to see for all of the world. That glory is yours because you're seated with Christ. So many times I hear Christians saying this in a defeated sense. After they've sinned, that's just who I am. I am just a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner. You will always be a sinner until Christ returns. But you have a glory that you can't see yet. That's who you primarily are. And when you When Jesus comes back, that primary glory will be revealed. You are a saint and a sinner. You are clothed with Christ and still have sin. If you define yourself by your past or by your struggles, you will always live defeated. But if you can say, I want to grow into my future self, I know I'll never attain perfection. I'll never be as glorious as I will that day. But I can grow into that. That's who I want to be. I don't want to be the past. I want to be the future. And so the goal of the Christian life is to become a little bit more of who you already are, which will be revealed when Jesus comes. Third, this is a shorter one. See sin as deadly So you'll kill it. One of my favorite quotes from John Owen, who wrote the classic work on mortification. One of my favorite quotes is this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
This is what Satan does. He tempts us by making sin look like it's life-giving, and then we, we give in to it. He just beats us with it. Utterly uses it to destroy our lives. One of, our, one of the Puritans, one of our fathers, would say it this way. He, he baits the hook and hides the barb. That's what he does. So you uncover that deception by, look, sin is deadly. If I don't kill it, it's going to kill me. Have you ever known someone who embraced sin and their life just became this flourishing thing where you said, I want to be like them? No, this is what it does. It lures us in. Learn that it's deadly, so you'll kill it. So that Paul's actual Verse 8, he goes through in 5 and 8, he goes through this list of particular sins. In verse 8, listen to these. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. It's just destructive behavior that ruins families and friendships and churches. Paul's like, look, I'm just uncovering it so you'll see it. I don't put these things to death in you or else they'll kill you and everyone around you. Fourth, See what sin provokes, so you'll want to kill it. Verse 6, he inserts this between these two lists of sins in 5 and 8. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now look at the list in verse 5. Sexual immorality, and that's, he's borrowing, he uses a word just kind of, wide swath of any sexual behavior that happens outside the context of lifelong union of marriage between husband and wife but it's like now I know the church has often gotten a bad rap for making sexual sin the biggest of sins and if you're a sexual sinner therefore you don't have a place but but look this is what he does he puts he puts sexual sin and then he's like evil desire that's in me covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming Zephaniah chapter 1 to give you an idea right so actually take the time to visualize when you're tempted to sin just take some time to visualize this because then it will make sin start to wither and die the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Not the trip to Disneyland that you think sin will take you to, unless you hate Disneyland, and then it sounds exactly like standing in lines at a hot floor today and spending way too much money. Sin is always a poor investment. Like any investment, its returns are not immediately seen, but the prospectus of sin guarantees a return, and it is this. The wrath of God is coming. Fifth, see the connection between behavior and and desires. We will look more at this next week, but let me say a few words here from verse 5 again. Right? He goes from behavior and crosses the spectrum into the heart, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes down to the want-tos. 
Like if you don't deal with the want-tos of your heart, that's where the roots of sin are. Unless you pluck out that root, it not only comes back, it starts to spread and send out its runners. It will like be like a weed. You've got to get the roots of desire. And since he takes us here, part of killing sin is to stop and ask the why questions. What did I want here instead of Jesus? It's a hard question to ask. But if you're going to kill sin, you've got to get down to the desire level. What do I want here besides Jesus? Because coveting is idolatry as well as the rest of those. Sixth, see sin, put it to death, see it as contrary to our new person in Christ. Verse 8 and 12, Paul switches metaphors here, and he switches from the executioner who puts sin to death to a, a closet where we take something off and put something on. And it's abrupt. He's making this abrupt change for points. He's changing metaphors because he's like, I just want you to get what this looks like. It looks like working out of your new identity in Christ by taking things off and putting things on. Like, think of the little orphan Annie when she was brought into Daddy Warbuck's mansion. The first thing they do is change her clothes. And she's got, you know, new clothes on and clothes that reflect her new identity and her new status. And Paul's saying, look, these, there's these old ways of doing things. Malice, anger, slander, obscene talk that comes out of your mouth. Like, take that stuff off. That's not who you are. Put on these new clothes to actually begin to say that's inappropriate behavior for me I need to take that off because I'm united to Jesus Christ and I'm clothed with his glory and his righteousness and I need to put on new behavior seventh lastly see Christ dwelling in you sort of a transition from that last point to this one. See Christ dwelling in you. Verse 11. This is where he goes. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. And you see what he's doing here. This is how, this is how the gospel works. He's showing us how the gospel works by attacking racism. Right? The roots of racism are always not primarily about skin color, although sometimes it takes that form, the deeper roots are arrogance and pride, particularly in this way. My ethnicity is better than yours. My culture is better than yours. My cultural expression is better than yours. Southern white culture likes fried food. The West Coast likes organic food. Those are just cultural expressions, just the way of doing life. And Paul's like, look, like, you can't go, that's bad and this is good. Those are just ways of doing life, and they're different for different culture. And what racism does, it says cultural self-righteousness is my cultural way of doing things is better than your cultural way of doing things. And Paul says the gospel completely obliterates all of this because in his church, Christ dwells in his people. And that's our core identity. And so you got to put aside something like 
cultural arrogance or cultural self-righteousness or racism because Christ dwells in black Christians and white Christians and fried food eating Christians and organic eating Christians because Christ is all and is in all. That doesn't mean those cultural expressions go away. Something like Greeks and Jews and barbarians and Scythians and all their way of doing life still remains. But that's not the core of who we are. The core of who we are in God's household is this. Christ is in you, my brother. Christ is in me. Christ is in all of his people. Therefore, I'm going to put away any type of pride that gets in the way. Any type of my way is better than your way that gets in the way. Paul actually applies this to sexuality, right? If you're struggling with sexual sin, he just says this in in 1 Corinthians 6. Just remember this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in you. That's a glorious reality. Why would you take it into the bed of someone who is not your husband and wife? Why would you take Christ by his spirit into that? That's just contrary to the glory that you have. Christ dwells in you. And that is a way of just putting sin to die. I want to be different than I currently am because the glory of Jesus and all of his radiance dwells in me. So look, mortification is like a game of whack-a-mole. You remember that game? The premise was these, these moles would pop up out of the game table and you'd take out a mallet and whack it down. You just kept whacking. You whack it, it dropped down. Another one would pop up. Whack it, it dropped down. And in this way, mortification, putting sin to death, is never done in this life. You constantly have to be on guard. But with the mallet of Christ's death, your union with him, your reign with him, that whack carries more power than you could ever exert on your own. So whack away at the remaining sin. They'll still pop up, but you'll grow and you'll get more adept at that. Like, I'm getting faster at this game. There's not popping up quite as much. I'm getting better at it, but be on guard. Always be on guard because sin will keep popping up and unless we are killing it, it will be killing us. Let's pray. Father, it's our only hope, our only hope. We are united to Jesus. And all of his power is ours by your spirit through the gospel. Help us to embrace that truth and put sin to death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.